Well, good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the get the privilege of being the pastor at the Gladstone campus of New Life Church. And I don't know if I know all of you yet, but I would love to meet you. So today we're talking about community. We all want to belong somewhere. We want to belong with someone. Many of us, the first time we thought about where we belong and where we fit was in middle school. Where am I going to sit for lunch in that cafeteria? Oh, that scary cafeteria. But if we're honest, I think as adults, we're in the same position. Where do we fit? Where do we belong? Where can I find community? Where can I find a place where there are people who have the same likes, the same desires, the same things in common with me? This longing for community is a big deal. It's something our world is looking for all over the place. And sadly, our world is looking for it in the places where it really isn't true community. Because the community we're made for, the community we're designed for, is to be found in one place and one place alone. And it's in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So today, we're continuing our look at our spiritual dynamic. Last week, Pastor Taylor taught about how the gospel builds, creates mission. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the gospel must be at the dead center. We talked about how the gospel is like a flywheel. As the gospel gets more and more power, it spins off, it shoots off fruit, and the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. And we've narrowed it down into four fruit. And today we're going to talk about how when the gospel takes root in our lives, it produces community. So as we just had read, we're going to be in Romans 15. So if you're not already there, please turn there with me. We're going to be looking at Romans 15, 1 through 7. Our main verses are verses 5, 6, and 7. And 7 begins with a therefore, which anybody who's a student of God's Word knows that a therefore says, because of what I've just taught, because of what I've just said. So we're going to start at the end. We're going to start in verse 7, and then we're going to go verses 1 through 7 to see it. So let's look at verse 7 together. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that therefore is like the equal signs in a math equation. It's saying this is the summation. This is the conclusion. This is like the final step in a syllogism, in an argument. This is the conclusion. So Paul is teaching how to have harmony, how to have unity, how to have fellowship, how to have what we call community. He's telling us that we need to have it, that we should have it, and he's telling us how to do it. So today what we're going to do is we're going to start off with the context, which is going to be verses 1 through 4. This is where Paul has been. Then in verses 5 and 6, he breaks into praise and prayer. And then in verse 7, he tells us how to do it. So let's get into it together. So the first thing we see is the context. And I summarized it this way, the strong must bear with the weak by not pleasing themselves. The strong must bear with the weak by not pleasing themselves. We see this in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So where has Paul been? This is obviously chapter 15 of his magnum opus, his grand statement of what the gospel is, the book of Romans. In, verse, in chapter 14, he's dealing with how do we have good interactions inside of the family of God. 
Look at verse 19 of chapter 14. Paul writes, So then let us produce what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 21, It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now before we make any changes to our after-church lunch plans, this is not talking about meat being bad or drink being bad. Instead, what it's talking about is it's talking about the relationship inside the church. So, what does it mean that some are weak and some are strong? This has nothing to do with physical strength or the strength of their spiritual gifts. No, instead, a weak believer is an immature believer, a new believer. A strong believer is a mature believer. Now, again, this has nothing to do with age. Just because you're 80 years old and you just became a believer doesn't mean you're more mature, spiritually speaking, than someone that's been a believer and is in their 20s. What this is talking about is it's talking about spiritual maturity. Paul had been having a bit of an issue in the churches he'd been at because of the meat that was purchased in the markets. A lot of the meat was first used for idol worship, and then what was left over was sold off at a reduced price. It still tasted good but they sold it at a reduced price. And so for a new believer, knowing that that's the same meat that was being sacrificed to idols would cause them to stumble. It would cause them to have issue with that. Maybe it would remind them of past sins. Or maybe it was just, should we really? And they were wrestling with that. So Paul is saying, listen, those of you that are mature, those of you that are strong in your faith, Be willing to give up eating that meat or drinking that wine or celebrating on that day or watching or seeing or doing whatever it may be for the benefit of those who are weaker than you. God wants to have us build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wants us to do it the right way. He doesn't want us to do it be like, fine, I won't eat the meat. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, he wants a cheerful giver. Now, we hear that phrase a lot of times when it comes to giving of money and giving of time, but it also goes for giving up our rights. As a mature believer, do I have the right to eat anything as long as it doesn't cause me to stumble? Well, technically, yes. Paul's saying, though, put off pleasing yourself. How is it going to affect the other? Paul is getting into this this section that we're going to see culminate in verse 7 when it's about welcoming the other into relationship with us and not worrying about myself. So I'm to joyfully give up my rights for the sake of someone else. Now, this isn't natural, is it? This isn't the way our world operates. Our world says, well, if you're mature, if you're strong, you should have your way. And all those immature, weak people should get in line. Instead, Paul's teaching, which is totally in line with Christ's teaching, says, no, we're to care for the other. We're to outdo one another in service. As believers, we're called to deny ourselves. We're called to deny the easy way. If you're here and you've been changed by the gospel and you're a disciple of Christ, you are to deny yourself and leave your comfort zone. Paul's going to make this very clear as we move on. Look at verse 2 with me. Let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, this is the positive of the negative that Paul left us with in verse 1. Verse 1 ends with, and not please yourselves. So that's a negative. Now, Paul says, do the opposite. Do the positive. Please your neighbor for his good and to build him up. Notice it's not please your neighbor because what you can get from them. 
Not a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. I'll look out for your house, you look out for my house. I'll beautify my house so that you'll beautify your house. It's not about what I get. Instead, it's about what I can give. Paul is here echoing Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, where it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Paul loves to quote from this. He quoted from Leviticus 18 earlier in Romans 13. He's going to quote from it in several of his other epistles. But the point here is, is that he's saying, build up your neighbor, do what's good for your neighbor. Those are your motivi- motivating factors. But Paul also has one caveat. He says, you're not just going to please them and do whatever they want. For those of you that know your Bible, you know Galatians is very similar to, to, uh, to Romans. In Galatians 1, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, some would look at that and say, well, over here he says, please your neighbor. And then over here he says, don't please your neighbor. How can it be both? Contradiction. The Bible's false. Throw it away. No, no. See, Paul knew what he had written. Paul knew the things that had been written down. He's giving us a full-orbed understanding. My goal is to please my neighbor and do what's best for them. But first and foremost, I'm to glorify the Lord in what I do. So if my neighbor says, you know what would make me really happy would be for you to deny your faith, I'm going to go, no, first and foremost, I'm here to please the Lord. So we don't please our neighbor by watering down the gospel. In fact, if we change the gospel in any way, add a little bit of something to it, hey, you're saved by grace, but a little bit of what you do, we just lost the gospel. We just lost the power of the gospel. If the gospel is changed in any way, anything subtracted from it destroys people. It does not lead people to life. So we can't add to the gospel. We can't subtract the parts that we don't like. Instead, we are to please people for their good and their upbuilding, and then we do it. If what we know would please them destroys them, we don't do it. That's our focus. And we as a church have been working really hard at trying to help stir one another up to do this. We have a thing called the Kingdom Initiative. This is an email list that comes out every single day. You can sign up for it on our website. And it's just reminders of what, uh, and, and encouragements and, and just trying to stir us up to do things. Last week, there was one that said, do you have more than you need? Is your freezer full? Did your garden produce too much? Why don't you think about giving it to your neighbor? Please your neighbor for their good and for their upbuilding. See, being a, being a Christian doesn't mean I do what I want. It also doesn't mean I always do what my neighbor wants. It's I do what glorifies God and brings others under the influence of the gospel. It's a small thing for me to give up a little bit of my stuff to please another for the opportunity for the gospel to go forward. One of the Puritans had this quote. It's just too good. I got to say the whole thing. Once you say yes to faith in Jesus and you accept the blueprint for the fullness of life, the whole world can no longer revolve around you your needs, and your gratifications. Instead, you'll have to revolve around the world, seeking to bandage its wounds, loving dead men into life, finding the lost, wanting the unwanted, and listen to this, leaving behind, far behind, the selfish parasitical concerns that drain our time and energies. I love that. The selfish parasitical concerns, like a parasite sucking the life from you, is what we are when we are all about self. See, the thing is, God meets us in our self-denial. When we put others before ourselves, we are saying, God, you are enough. 
I don't need to meet my own needs. You will take care of it. We are saying, look, I'm not looking after self. I'm looking after the other because God is so good, he's going to take care of me. God is the one who's going to do it. Now, Paul, being a good teacher, is not going to say, hey, take my word for it. Instead, he says, let me show you an example of this. And what's the example? It's Jesus. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I love that word for there. It's another one of those words. We already talked about how therefore is a concluding word. The word for is what's called a ground or a reason. What it's saying is, I just said something and here's the reasons for it. Paul says, the reason why you all should please the other for their good and upbringing is because that's what Jesus did. Jesus is our example. If we think about it, what Jesus gave up, all of his rights, all of his privileges, all of his freedoms that he gave up as God of the universe to become a man, to take on flesh, to then take on our sins and die the death we deserved is greater than anything anyone on the earth can give up. You think about the richest person on earth. There's debate. Is it Jeff Bezos? Is it Elon Musk? Is it some sultan living somewhere? It doesn't matter. Put them all together. They give up all their money. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what Christ gave up to come to earth and take on flesh. And so Paul's saying, if Christ can do that, we can do this small thing of not eating meat, of not drinking the wine, of not claiming our own rights. So then he says, but as it was written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now let's be honest, I doubt anybody in this room has used the word reproach this week. So what does that mean? Well, it means insults, it means taunts, it means put-downs, it means ridicule. So Christ is saying, the ridicules of those who ridiculed you fall on me. This is pointing to Christ's substitution in our place. This is a quote from Psalm 69.9. This is a very popular psalm. All four of the Gospels use it. Paul uses it elsewhere to say this is what Jesus is doing on the cross. On the cross, everything that we deserved, all of the just filth, the nastiness, all of the punishment that we deserve for our sins is on him. He says this is what Christ did. This is how Christ shows of pleasing and doing the good and building us up. See, Paul's quoting the Old Testament because the Old Testament points to how Jesus did this taking the filth and giving us his pure life. See, the the, the gospel is good news, but it's not new news. It's been there for a very long time. It's throughout the Old Testament, pointing to the fact we need a Savior. And praise be to God that Jesus didn't please himself. Pleasing himself would have stayed in heaven. Instead, he came down and took our mess. All of God's word points to this. One of the ways that God's word points to this is we see the two greatest commandments. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you do both of those, I guarantee you there's no time in your day to worry about self. Now, there have been some Bible teachers who have taken this verse and said, well, it says you have to love your neighbor as yourself. So the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out how to love self. And then once you're done figuring out how to love self, then you can love neighbor. Can we just be honest? That's complete and utter nonsense. 
If there's something we're all good at, we're all good at narcissism, aren't we? Narcissism is a fancy word for loving self. I hear some kids in the room, and I know parents, you've been around those kids. Let's be honest. Until about the age of four, your kids are only good at three things, right? What are they expert at? Crying, pooping, and being a narcissist. Can I get an amen on that? Right? I mean, that's what we're good at. It's our default setting. No one has to teach a two-year-old to be focused on self. They do it perfectly. As a matter of fact, there's some 18-year-olds that do it perfectly too. But that's a whole other story. So it's amazing, though, in our world when all of a sudden somebody is focused on the other, focused on caring for someone else for no reason. There was a story that I saw on the news last week or the week before. Some of you have probably seen it. It's all over the place. ESPN covered it. All the different news channels covered it. The video of it was on YouTube, and it's had over 20 million hits. I mean, it's insane. People are talking about this. What is it? Is it some new dance? Is it the newest TikTok craze? No. It's a young boy by the name of Isaiah Jarvis. He's 12 years old, long blonde hair playing baseball two weeks ago. He was in the game before the World Series for the Little League. He's up to bat. Runner's on base. He's standing there. He's got to get some runs. His team's down by three. The pitcher pulls back, throws the ball, and hits him in the side of the head, knocking him over. Ball hits him right in the temple. Knocks him over. Now what does he do? What 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 does Zay do? Does he do what the big babies do in the major leagues? Take the helmet off, throw the bat down, and charge? No. He gets up, he brushes himself off. The trainer says, are you all right? He says, I'm fine. He calmly walks to first base. Now, why would this be a big story? Well, it's because what happens next. Zay looks over at the pitcher. The pitcher's got his head down, and you can see he's wiping away tears. The pitcher thought he had hurt Isaiah. And the pitcher knew that by hitting that batter, he was going to walk in a run, and now the bases were going to be loaded. And his team had probably had a less likely chance of winning. He also knew that he was going to get pulled. And so he was sobbing. So you know what Zay did? He said, time, time. And he calmly walks out to the pitcher's mound. And he grabs the kid in a big hug. And you can hear on the microphone, because the coach had walked out and the coaches were mic'd. And you hear him saying, you're doing great. It's going to be okay. You are, you're so good. It's going to be okay. And he rubs his back and then walks back to first base. Now listen to what the newscasters from the local TV station said. The whole scene was the opposite of what you'd normally expect in baseball. When the pitcher might walk over to make sure the batter who got hurt is okay, here the blonde from Oklahoma, who later said he only had a small bruise from the incident, was soothing the emotional needs, emotional wounds of the pitcher that he was feeling on the inside. People in the crowd were clearly moved with TV cameras catching people wiping their eyes during the touching scene. This is so foreign to our world that somebody would go, I don't care what you've done to me. I am going to care for you. I'm going to love you despite our differences. Yeah, baseball is not a hyper-aggressive sport, but I guarantee you that those boys saw those other boys as their enemy. Let's beat them. And yet Zay goes, you know what? I'm going to care for this boy. What I love best is what the pitcher's response was when he was asked, what do we learn from this? This is what he says. I think the lesson that you should care is that you should care for other people. Like if they're down, you should just build them up. You should just 
try to build them up. See, he got what this passage is talking about. It's about building up others. It's not about building up me. It's not about my kingdom. It's about building up others and pleasing others. And that's a 12-year-old boy. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Paul starts with another four here. So this is the ground. This is the reason why he said what he just said. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul's saying, the reason why I just quoted that passage is because our foundation of what is good and what is upbuilding comes from God's Word. He says we might have hope here through the encouragement and the endurance we find in Scripture. Paul's saying we have to have God's Word as our measuring stick of what is good for our neighbor. He's clearly talking about the Old Testament since he's writing the New Testament right now as he's writing Romans. And then he says, this is the authority. This is our foundation. So now this passage gives us direction on how to love our neighbor, how to be good for our neighbor. It's all over God's Word. But before we get into the next part, how does our world build community? Our world builds community based on likeness. Think about it. I mean, the world's all about choosing who the neighbor is that I'm supposed to love, isn't it? It's not the person who lives next door to me. It's the person who lives down the street that has the same likes as me. And if I could honestly choose, I'd probably choose them to live next door, wouldn't I? Deciding who you love as yourself is what our world's all about. It's not about loving people that are different than me. It's about loving people that are like me. And isn't it ironic that the people that I'm loving look just like me It's kind of like a way of loving me, isn't it? When we love those who are just like us, it's a form of self-worship. It's a form of self-love. See, we need to understand that to love the other is to leave our comfort zone. It's to leave the place where we feel most comfortable. World builds community. The world builds groups based on life experience or similar identity, similar cause, similar needs. Similar goals, similar social, economic, and so on. If we only want people around us who are just like us, it's a way to love ourselves. And Jesus had some words about that. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? Comfort-based community, based on how much we have in common, is just like any other group in the world. We don't need Jesus for it. We don't need the gospel. Instead, we just need to find people who are like us. Now, Paul is saying this may happen in church, but it's not what should be. When the gospel takes root and the Holy Spirit is inside of us, it makes us want to please the neighbor, not because they're like me, not because of what they can do for me, but because they're my neighbor. They are close to me. They're the ones that are there. This is a natural outworking of the Spirit in our lives. It's the natural fruit. So we must constantly be looking, am I bearing the fruit that comes from the Spirit living inside me? So Paul lays this out in verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, it's kind of hard to see, but I'm going to show you where it is. Paul bursts forth in prayer. Now, this is a freebie, but... I'm going to teach you guys a word. It's the word emanuenses. 
Okay, there's your seminary word for the day, right? You can use that. It'll never show up in Wordle. It'll never be on Jeopardy. It'll never win any points in any kind of dinner talk, but you got a new word. It's the word emanuenses, which is a fancy word for a person with a pen. It's that. It's a scribe. When Paul wrote his letters, he dictated them. He said them out loud, and an amanuensis, who we're going to call Fred, Fred would sit and write down the words as he was going. So right here, this is how I envision what happened. Paul has been talking. Now, if you were to sit down and read all of Romans out loud, all the way up through verse 15, chapter 5, you've just been talking for about an hour and a half. That's how long it would take to do it. So Paul's been just going. And I, th- I think Paul's one of those guys who doesn't need caffeine, and he's just going, going, going with theology and so on. And right here, as he's talking about how we have hope that comes from the Scriptures, he burst forth in prayer. And we see it here. He says, May the God of all endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think right then, Fred raises his hand and goes, Paul, you're praying right now. Do you want that in there? And Paul goes, yes, I do. I want to pray for every single person who will read these words, whether they're in Rome, whether they're as far away as West Lynn, Oregon. I want every single one of them to know that this is my prayer. This is where Paul's heart resides. So he speaks this benediction mid-sentence, and Fred included it. This is called what we would call a benediction. At the end of the service, Pastor Eric will get up here and he'll, he'll pronounce a benediction over us. It just means a good word. This is a good word. Paul utters this because he can't hold back his passion for the community he wants to see. So what does he pray for for us and for the Romans? He prays for harmony. He prays for unity. He's praying for community. But look at what he says is our basis for community. He says, grant that you live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. What he's saying there is the reason we come together is Christ Jesus, our union with him. The fact that he is our savior and his spirit resides in us is what brings us together. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our gender. It's not any of those categories that our world uses. It is Christ and Christ alone. So understand We don't have unity for unity's sake. We have unity for the glorifying of God's sake. That's what it's here for. We're to glorify God. When we come together and we are in a community that would not gather together except for by the gospel, it glorifies God. It makes Him look as good as He is. This is what we want. This is what Paul wants for us. We don't get this by some relational structure. We don't get this by a church program. We don't get this by some forcing it and trying to count up the number of people in each group. We get this by letting the gospel work on each and every one of us, letting the Holy Spirit loose inside of us and see what he sees. Who is it that's not included? Who is it that's not like me? Because when we cross over those boundaries of comfort, that's when the gospel's on display. That's when the gospel is on display. One of, the, one of my favorite authors wrote this. We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, something that only you know, we add on to our private devotional lives. Instead, we must recognize that it's a spiritual necessity. God has made us so that our fellowship with other believers is the number one way that we are fed. 
It's the number one way that we deepen and enrich our understanding of the gospel. Community is not just a nice-to-have type of thing. Instead, it's essential to who we are. We must have it. So there's two types of communities that pop up in churches. The first one's called Gospel Plus. Okay, now don't be confused. This isn't like premium. It's not like Disney and then Disney Plus or Hulu and then Hulu Plus. It's none of that. Instead, what it is is we have this community that we gather around the sameness and we sprinkle in the gospel. This is comfort zone community. This is where we gather together and we say, this is a group that gathers together because we all have similar likes. Oh yeah, and Jesus. Now this is popular in churches. We'll see this all over the place. It's popular because it works. People gathered together that are the same, that's, that's all over the place. But it's not the biblical model. Let me show you. Let's talk about the disciples for a second. Jesus grabs 12 men. Yeah, they're all men. And yeah, they're all Jewish. Most of them are fishermen, but they're a lot more different than you first would grasp. See, the thing is, these fishermen, yeah, okay, so you just kind of imagine it, right? You're thinking it's kind of like the Willamette. They've all got their boats and they're doing their thing. No, that's not the way it worked. These were fishermen that fished for a living and they had a whole family in a boat. And they would go out and they would follow the fish. And I have no doubt that the families occasionally would be arguing over where, who, where and who and what they could fish, Right? The Sea of Galilee was not big enough that they would never bump into each other or never be fighting for the same area. So these fishing families, now they're not so hardcore that they're like mafia families fighting each other, but there would have been disagreements. There would have been times, oh, you're fishing my spot. Fishermen in the room know that you have a spot, and if someone takes that spot, it's this. Not only that, but then you have merchants as the disciples. These merchants would have thought of the fishermen as very smelly, they would have thought of them as, you know, trying to make money off of them when they're trying to set a certain price. And see, those are the ones you probably didn't even think about. The one you probably thought about, if you know your disciples, is Simon and Matthew. Not Simon Peter, but the other Simon. Simon the Zealot. That doesn't mean he was like outgoing and really personable. No, it meant that he violently opposed the Romans, meaning he wanted to kill anybody who helped the Romans. Then you got Matthew over here. What's his job? a tax collector. He's working hand in hand with the Romans. He's taking the money from the Jewish people and handing it to the Romans. He's with them. Can you imagine some of those around the fire discussions between Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector? This was a very unuser friendly group, wasn't it? And what you would expect is you'd expect as soon as Jesus died and went up to heaven, they'd start fighting. But praise be to God, Jesus sends his spirit and the Spirit comes in, and these guys get along, and they change the world. We need to understand, that's how God pictures it. Not, we come together with only people like us. Instead, we come together based on the gospel. We must remember, whenever we add anything to the gospel, we make it a non-gospel. It's not Jesus and our works. It's not Jesus is mostly the way. He's three-fourths the way. No, he says, I am the way, the only way to salvation. Anything less is changing it for the worse. So that's one way churches try to grow. They go gospel plus. The, the, the biblical way is gospel revealing. This is a community that would not exist apart from the gospel. This is a group when the world looks at them and goes, how on earth did that happen? Why is there this 80-year-old and this 20-year-old, and why are they hanging out and they're like best friends? 
How do they even connect? One's like on MySpace still, and the other one's on TikTok, Instagram. How does, what? How does that come together? And when the world looks at that, they have no way to understand that. But we understand that it means that the gospel is working. It's outside the comfort zone. Listen to this quote from Carson. Ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, race, income, politics, ancestry, accents, jobs, or any of that sort. In this light, the church is a band of natural enemies who come together to love one another for Jesus' sake. See, we need to understand, and this is what we talked about two weeks ago, with the gospel as the center. Our lives are to be lived out parables of the gospel. There's not a place that you're going to go this week where your life is not a parable of the gospel. What is it saying? Is it saying the gospel is, I look just like the rest of the world, or is the gospel, I'm something different? I'm something not of this world. If we think about it, if we just hang out with people that are just like us, we're really telling God we don't need you. Hey God, you know what? Um, we're going to get together in this Bible study of everybody who's all from the same place, and we're going to sit together and study God's Word, but we don't need you to bring us together, so why don't you just show up when we have the prayer time, and then we'll, we'll, we'll call on you when we need you. That's not the picture of what the Bible says communities to be like. Community is to gather around the gospel and let it form us in whatever ways we see fit. Now, do not hear me saying wanting to be around people like you is a sin. That's not what I'm saying. Matter of fact, some of you are in this room because someone who is just like you said, I want to introduce you to this guy, Jesus. Come to church with me. And you came to church and you are now a believer because of that. But what I'm saying is when our church groupings are becoming homogenous when they're all the same, that's not in keeping with what the gospel should look like. When we visibly show our unity around the gospel, we make the invisible visible. When we show that the Holy Spirit is working in us outwardly and people can see it, we're making the Holy Spirit visible. We're making the gospel visible. Our new society that we should be growing as a church is not a mutual admiration society. It's a shared admiration society. It is derivative, but it derives from the fact that we are worshiping God. We're brought out of a million different communities into the family of God. We no longer get our identities from the fact that we belong to this family or this nationality or this socioeconomic or this or that. And I love this. Listen to this quote. We are Christians. And so as an urban American of the professional class, I have more in common with my working class, rural, Sudanese brother in Christ than my non-Christian blood brother. Think about that for a second. Someone living on the other side of the world, working a job that I could never do, who doesn't even speak English, has more in common with me if I'm a Christian, if I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, than my neighbor who may be just like me and everything else. We must understand that's what true community is. And our world is longing for that. Our world wants community, but they are manufacturing it through just so superficial things when we can get it through Christ. And this is how Paul tells us to do it. This is the means. We are to welcome like Christ did. Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I mean, this, this, is, this is a passage that can preach itself. This is the application. Paul says, this is what you must do. 
That word welcome is kind of a weak word, right? You know, when someone walks to your house, oh, welcome, you know, people got welcomers out here, greeters, welcome, that's it. That's not what that word means. It's a Greek word. It's proslambethesno, which means to welcome intensely. Like we don't even have an English word for what that looks like. And so Paul says, welcome intensely like Christ welcomed you. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? Christ doesn't just go, come on in, yeah, okay, now you can leave. No, he goes, come on in, and as a matter of fact, you're coming to sit at my table, you're a part of my family, you're here now. That's the way Christ welcomes us, receives us, accepts us, and takes us in. This is the only command in verses 5 through 7. It's the only imperative. It says, you must do this. Paul is saying, stop everything you're doing and make sure you're welcoming one another. So what does this look like? This looks like glorifying God through how we treat each other, how we please each other, how I'm looking to build you up, how I'm looking out for your good. It's amazing when that happens. It's hard though, isn't it? It's hard to be harmonious and reconciled and welcoming across generations, across ethnicities, across musical tastes. It's hard. We have a lot of differences. But ultimately, when we come together in spite of our differences, it glorifies God. I want to give you an example of this. I met two men this last March. Their names are Kenny King. Kenny King's six foot five, African-American man. And William Marshall, about five foot nothing, bald, white-haired, bearded, white man. Kenny and William have a crazy story to share. They live in Sykeston, Missouri. Sykeston, Missouri was the location of the last lynching in the entire state of Missouri. It is a city that is literally divided by railroad tracks. 45% of the population lives on this side. It's African-American. 99.9% of the people on this side are African-American. On the other side, 55% of the city lives, and it's 99.9% white. And literally, there is no interaction between these two sides. Every time there's any sort, of, uh, any sort of racial anything, both sides, lots of protests, counter-protests, and so on. Kenny and William were telling the story of their two churches. They both had a church. William's church, 100% white. Kenny's church, 100% black. Totally separate. But both of these men started having a stirring in their lives. And as I was watching, Kenny was telling the story first, and he was standing up, and, and he was talking about uh, how him and William had met, and I was watching William. William was standing right behind him, and he was looking at Kenny, and I saw something in William's eyes, and I saw it again when William started talking, and Kenny was watching him. This just love, this adoration for someone totally different. I mean, their life stories could not be any more different in how they got to where they were as pastors. But I saw this love between these two men. I remember at the time going, I really hope my two blood sons, they have love like that. I hope that someday I can love my fellow pastors like that. So much so that afterwards I had to go up to Kenny and, and, and William and say, I need your notes because I was too busy. I was looking at how you were looking at him. That's kind of a weird thing to say. But as they told the story, what they both shared was God was working on Kenny and God was working on William. And they both in their quiet times were going, Lord, why is my church not matching what the church universal looks like? What is the problem here? And they both were praying, I need someone in my life to help me, help me be able to love the other. 
And one day, Kenny and William bumped into each other at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event. They went and got coffee. And that started a two-year journey where they met every single week. They prayed and they Bible studied together. They spent time together as families. And you know what they felt? both felt the Lord was telling them to do? To close their churches. So they did. They said, we're closing the church over here. We're closing the church over here. They bought up some land next to the railroad tracks and they built a church called Grace Bible Church, which to this day for the last four years, is 45% African-American and 55% white. And their story is one that they've, they've, they've done news reports. Nobody understands how this group got together. When we had some of the racial stuff going on a few years ago, this church was a beacon of light to both communities in a way that the world could not understand because they don't get the gospel. What does it say in 1 Corinthians? The gospel is Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. They had no way of understanding how these two groups could come together. When a community in the local church defies natural explanation, it confirms the supernatural power of God's Spirit. The story of Kenny and William shows that the Holy Spirit's at work in that community. So when we think about how Christ has accepted us, and what that looks like to welcome others the same way. We have to remember that Christ accepted us, not because of what he could get from us, not because we were going to add something to his church. I really need one of those. Not because we were better than somebody else, but because we had a need. And that's how Christ welcomed us. They have a need, I'm going to bring them in. So we as a church must be a welcoming church. We are a self-denying church. We deny ourselves. We go after those who need us. When we do this, we show that God is our treasure. Because I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about the other. God will meet my needs. I'm going to work to meet the needs of someone else. So what does this look like here at New Life Church? Well, it means we need to get out of our comfort zone. When we gather together on Sundays, it's really easy for us to go hang out with the people we already know. It's really easy to get together in our life groups, which are already meeting during the week. But instead, we need to break out of our comfort zone. We need to break across generations. We need to break across socioeconomic, ethnicity, whatever the differences are that our world so often likes to harp on. And instead, come together across our comfort zones and build real community based on God's word when the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, this work that appears to be impossible for our world becomes light work because the Holy Spirit is doing it in us. When we take the time to love those who are different than us, not out of obligation, but because of the fact that the one who loved us in spite of our differences is living in us, it just flows out of us. It'll naturally occur. So the first and foremost, we must make sure that we have the gospel in us. If you don't know that, please talk to one of the pastors here or one of the elders. And from there, let it spill out. If it's something you look around and you go, the only people I know are the people that are just like me, ask the Lord to help you have the eyes to see those who are different. They're there. They're right in front of you. We must leave our comfort zones. Find somebody you don't know this morning and get to know them. The next step is we need to be in life groups. Like Pastor Eric has said, and I, I, I've heard it many times from the pulpit, this is where community happens. This is where we really rub into each other and our differences become apparent, but then the similarity of the gospel wears those differences off. We must be in close proximity 
in order to do that. So life group is where we do that. We gather together around God's word, around the fact that Jesus died and resurrected in our place for us. We gather there. This is where we see the gospel on display. So this morning, leave your comfort zone. Strike up a conversation. Find somebody you don't know. Get to know them. If you're not in a life group, find somebody here who is. They'll invite you. There's free food. Come on. We need you. The community needs you. You need the community. And more importantly, we need to live out the gospel so the world will see. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this good news. We thank you that this good news is not something that we are to keep to ourselves. It's not something we bring out on Sundays, put on display, but it's something that affects our lives completely. We love the fact, Lord, that not only is it something that affects our lives completely, but you have done all the heavy lifting. You've taken our sins, you've given us your perfect life, and then you've sent your spirit to reside in us. So Lord, remove from us the obstacles that are getting in the way from us loving those who are different than us, loving those who are not like us. Lord, take us out of our comfort zone and put us in an uncomfortable place where we will rely on you even more Make the gospel on display in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.